Welcome to this week's episode of the Spinoza Triad, where John Gibbs, Dan Rowland, and Dr. Richard Miller discuss freedom. We try to place freedom within the context of the digital societies we term it, that is to say social media and the ability to record information. We wonder whether freedom has been enhanced by these developments or decreased. Dan begins by asking a rather unhelpful question, which is what exactly we mean by freedom. This we hadn't particularly considered. As usual, our discussions are unscripted. I hope you enjoy them. We certainly did. What is freedom? We need to get basics, first of all, established before we start looking at the modern interpretations of it all lack. So what do we mean by freedom? Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having taken all these notes and read all these books, I hadn't actually thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> of because it's something I have no idea. It's no. something we talk about. We talk about like previous generations talked about God, freedom, freedom. This freedom. Like people used to. We, we've replaced the word God with freedom in the 16th century. People talked about the God's will and God. God's will be done. But often we don't actually understand, or not, that sounds poncy, we don't actually think about what freedom actually means for us. We don't actually define it. There's no parameters to it. And that might be the reason why there's all these uh, debates and discussions and tremendous squabbles and arguments going on in society now, especially on which has been fueled by social media. The distinction between positive and negative freedom. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction, actually. You you know, it's associated with Isaiah Berlin, this idea, the idea of negative and positive freedom. The best way, you know, to explain that to say our listeners to this, negative freedom is uh, a lack of restrictions on what you can do. And positive freedom is the ability for you to fulfill uh, your potential or your desires. So, for instance, if a good way of understanding it is uh, if a disabled person is told they can do and go and where they please uh, that's fine that's a negative freedom they can do and go, go where they please um, but it's a positive freedom there wouldn't be available if there were no steps and ramps and lifts or rather there were too many steps and ramps no ramps and lifts so the positive freedom is the freedom to be actually able to fulfill your desires the negative freedom is simply the the absence of obstacles to do as you please they seem to be in a kind of opposition at times i mean in order for to fulfill positive freedoms you have to sometimes you have to maybe quite often restrict the negative freedoms someone's freedom to be to be a fr- free of gun crime might involve the restriction of someone else's freedom to have a gun so often negative freedoms are associated with conservative views of a limited government limited intervention and positive freedoms with more um, government action and more liberal views of society yeah i mean there are so um, many ways of engaging with that though isn't it you could take a sociological position with that can't you about what external impositions there are you know can i be coerced do i allow do i allow myself to be coerced and therefore i'm free so the key question is which you always hear on lbc and talk shows and that kind of thing these irate people you know shouting screaming 
you know why should i obey anyone else especially with the with the virus and the pandemic you know that's fueled by this concept of freedom but yeah. i think the concept is is a confused one a lot of a lot of people express freedom now in the negative sense um without a, set, a system of duties and obligations that you have towards the other and the stranger so people talking about the lockdown measures and always talking about freedom and going out in the street and demanding freedom mm. are forgetting the second half of the equation which freedom only exists because of your duties towards the other right. so you don't hear you don't hear them talking about that so I, so in the modern sense i kind of think that's kind of missing what do you mean by what? duty to the other though i i know ethically that is it, is it an inherent condition of freedom to have some duty to an other well, that, that's that's the debate or, or when should you, start you? Is, it, is or an yeah, or I, mean, I mean where, i think when you start talking about freedom in a philosophical way you've got those three questions why should i obey anyone else why should i not live as i like why must I obey? Uh, and do I choose to be coerced into yeah. those things? You've got you've got an uh, obligation towards the other because you're choosing. In order for you to be free, you're choosing to give up some of your own freedoms. Well, that is the you know, well, that's one of the great paradoxes of freedom, isn't it? It's the it's the Rousseau yeah. idea of forcing someone to be free. You can take someone's right to have a gun away to make us all free to, from gun violence. You can take away my right to not wear a seatbelt. Because of my because it, because my my freedom to not wear a seatbelt restricts your freedom to have uh, to have resources in the NHS spent wisely or whatever. So in other words, responsibility yeah. to others is a sort of collect. But it's interesting what you said right at the beginning, Dan, is that lots of us don't really think about this. We all think we feel and know, and it's become a mantra, as you said, almost like a re- religious religious free. Yes, we must be sacred. free. In this profane world, we, we live in a profane world, but this is a sacred uh, thing. So we, we hold it up, uh, freedom it and the NHS. These, these are the only things which we hold dear now, but we don't quite well, know what we mean by it. It's that, that common cry that people used to say, well, yeah, it's a free society, ain't it? You know, <laughs> it's kind of, well, yeah. people used to say that when I was at school anyway. It's a free society, <laughs> isn't it? Like someone would do something yeah. absolutely disgusting, like spit on the pavement the, or something. And you say, oh, you dropping you litter, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and drop bag on the same free society, isn't it? And, but, yeah, that, exactly. but I think you can distinguish there between the complicated analysis of freedom, which is where we're going. I don't want to sound elitist here, but where we are going. Right? And the everyday freedom, the sort of vulgar freedom, like like vulgar patriotism is like flags and and union yeah. and stuff. Vulgar, vulgar ideas of freedom is do as you please. Well, that's no concept of freedom can possibly be do as you please. But that's anarchy. That that's nothing to do with politics. That's that's apolitical. It's saying let's not have any political structures. Let's not have any restrictions. If you want to create a political idea, a political society, that has to involve restrictions. Absolutely. So these people are wanting to li- wanting to live in you know in in a, in a society free of people. So the only place where you'll be truly free is when you're dead. <laughs> when you don't when you don't have to interact with anyone. Looking forward. You know I'm looking I mean? forward yeah. to that. Actually, <laughs> oh, good. Yes, <laughs> last, those are going to be my last words. At last, <laughs> a bit of peace, a bit of bloody peace. <laughs> <laughs>
But then that harming is such a broad area. If you go into Tesco's and you you buy coffee from not a fair trade place, your actions, he would say, could be, you know, that's a secondary harm, yeah. not actually a direct harm. So it does depend on the definition of, of harm with liberal kind of argument. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. I wonder, I wonder yeah. what you said earlier with the freedom, though. You know, I, I remember saw a discussion once, I think, that was, I, I think it was bad. You know, yeah, he, he even wrote a book on, on this, St. Paul. It's, it's actually mm-hmm. called that. And it's about this very thing we're talking about. I just don't remember very well off the top of my head yeah. the, the well, arguments that, that he made. Kind of- talking about St. Paul. In, in it, he talks about before the law, there was no law. And he, he's basically talking about the way in which by bringing into the law, you bring in the transgressions to the law. So there was no sin before there was the law. Good, the, yeah. the, the very imposition of the law itself brings in its its own transgressions. So the act of freedom is almost psychopathic in some respects because it's it demands everything. Yeah, the, the book you're referring to there, Richard, is um, St. Paul, The Foundations of Universalism by... Uh, Alain Badiou, that's uh, the French philosopher Badiou, B-A-D-I-O-U. I've just Googled this, by the way, so uh, I'm not claiming I remember this off the top of my head. But the book, but Badiou's book, reframes or reconstructs or takes a different view of St. Paul as not just as one of the founding fathers of the Christian church, but uh, the Christian religion or the Catholic church, but also um, as a radical revolutionary figure, since he extrapolates the quite sensibly, really, that a universalist idea of God, that God is somehow able to reach out to every individual, empowers every individual in a radically liberal kind of way, which could be seen as anarchic. In other words, Christianity is a is the you know is the Christ of turning over the tables in the temple. It's uh, where the individual can be seen as having a sort of bat line, you know, as it were, directly to the guy upstairs. And in this sense, every individual is liberated. Who's, who's to tell me what to do if I am directly in contact with God? In this sense, it's anarchic, as Richard, as you, as you point out, and a universalist view and a universalist relationship with God could underpin views of the universal nature of freedom, the universal nature of individualism, right the way till today. So, that, in other words, you can, you can appropriate individualist, universal Christianity for both a left, a radical left, and a radical right form of revolutionary thought which reminds me to plug the uh, website which accompanies the Spinoza triad now so if you wish to look up um, links to Alain Badieu or um, other links to any other authors or references we make in our podcast now please follow the link on the podcast to the website which accompanies this and hopefully helps to explain some of the things we talk about and some of the ideas that pop up in our minds. If we had a society of psychopaths, nobody would be You know, it'd yeah. be like that uh, awful uh, series, The Purge. You, know, yeah. nobody would be <clears throat> you could then say, you could have a very limited positive view of freedom by saying I'm free and behind my locked doors and uh, and my gate. That's overlaying ethics onto that though, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and it also is overlaying... I, think, up... I, don't, I don't think you can detach ethics from freedom. It's not like a, na- it's not a natural thing. It's a human construct. No, nobody's naturally free because if they are, which is what the people who talk about freedom are always talking about, the natural state of man, it'll be a state of anarchy. But isn't that... Nasty, brutal, nasty, brutish. I, 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 was gonna, I was about to say, isn't that a Hobbes, that's a Hobbesian view, isn't it? That's yeah, that, that yeah. Man in his natural state, is, it's all nasty, brutish and short, the war of all against yeah. all. No, I'm, I'm thinking part, can you detach ethics from freedom? I, I, well, freedom, whichever concept of freedom you have, it's an ethical, it's an ethical concept. Whether you think it's that it's right for people to be left alone to to be ruggedly individual, 
that's an ethical decision about well, the nature of human beings and, and how they should live. And if you think we're freer when we're cooperative and collective under a state of rule and law, then that's also an ethical choice. I mean, it, it, the, the, the discussion of freedom is, a, is an ethical discussion. It, 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 unless yeah. you think of it in terms of like almost like a drive, though, you know, pure freedom. I, I don't know what that would look like. Like you say, would it, it's not, it would be committing negative freedoms on, on others, though, wouldn't it? The answer to Hobbes is Rousseau. That man is man in his natural state is actually quite okay, and it's only society that starts to impose man is born free, but he's everywhere in chains. So you've got the. It's only as soon as you start introducing society and concepts of property owning, and in fact rules themselves start to inhibit mankind. So you start being coming jealous of your neighbour, or you you start fearing you haven't got enough of something. So society mm. then produces the kind of animalistic, grotesque person that we're yeah. then afraid of because we assume that would only be worse if we were free. <laughs> but, then, so if, if, but, but then the trouble with Rousseau is he's then saying a kind of a, an elite would have to decide what freedom is and then force people to be free. So there's a sense of coercion because it's kind of a view that, oh, the average person doesn't quite know what's best for them. Yes. But we're going to create a society that will bring out the best in everyone. Therefore coercion equals freedom which becomes a difficult equation to to, to square there isn't it? It, it it is difficult coercion equals freedom you're right you know but it, but then again where what's the difference between coercion equals freedom and an acceptance that there should be rules or there should be fairness or the moment you start talking about rules and fairness you're going to start coercing people yeah fair point it's inevitable yeah so we're in living a rules-based society we're all following Rousseau's social contract yeah whether we think that in that in a natural state we'd all be wandering in the woods happily picking flowers <laughs> or whether we'd be <laughs> ravaging each other like mad beasts whatever we believe we still sort of think that that there should be some kind of leviathan yeah point's an important one then because he's trying rich is trying to say well, what is the natural state of man? And that's the key question. If we are going to be picking flowers together and smiling for all eternity, <laughs> then obviously, you know, we don't need rules. But because we do need rules, perhaps it is a Hobbesian view of nature that we essentially have. And I think Richard was about to say something about the psychology of it, saying it's almost like a natural thing, the idea of freedom. There's a couple of things there. I mean, there's definitely the philosophy and psychology and stuff we've talked about before where you've got the, uh, this underpinning mm. thing that limits your freedom you know whether or not it's the freudian id or uh, hegel's night of the world or these other arguments mm. we've talked about in other podcasts i mean just on on a kind of political level of freedom i was thinking about the hegel stuff we did on the other podcast when i was reading that you know the i didn't mention it on there, that determinant negation uh, opposites where freedom by its own logic becomes authoritarianism if we have to imply freedom on, on everyone it's two sides of the same coin almost it threw mm. me a bit that Dan because it, when we said about doing this one on freedom and, and I've been looking at like stuff around technology and you know you, Dan you very unhelpfully started with a <laughs> fundamental definition <laughs> that we should have considered that is that was really yeah. well sorry yeah. sorry because yeah. <laughs> when you said that that voice in my head thinking I've, I've actually got no idea <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, I which haven't I think is one. the point that, Rich that's the point that's the yeah. point we, we, we don't we don't think we use it all the time we don't know I, what we're talking about slightly worryingly if I admit it in the back of my head when I keep saying the word freedom over and over again I get Mel Gibson was William Wallace punching the air 
as you start to construct rules and as you become as society organizes itself in a way as you start to construct rules, yeah, yeah. so you start to define those things that that might have once been considered unconsidered in fact you start defining areas of transgression so one, one of the reasons there's a lot more crime an argument goes is because there are a lot more laws yes yeah that's the point yeah. i think isn't it so we, we produce more areas of transgression you know and then just produce more limits on our freedom by trying to define <clears throat> how to behave it doesn't the digital age just yes. produce a massive area of control of which we can now transgress we can now transgress in our own, own individual lives or see myself digitally there's a digitization of the world which foucault idea of the of that he takes from bentham of the panopticon and the idea of the discourse discourse of control and discipline discipline and punish in which he uses the metaphor of of bentham's panopticon the perfect designed prison where everyone everyone believes themselves to be observed therefore they don't know Mm -hmm. whether you don't know whether you're being observed but you believe yourself to be observed in the digital age as laws define behaviors as transgressive so the increasing digitization of our world has defined mm. all sorts of ways in which we can now measure, for instance, us as, us as educators, as it were. You know, what, what's happened to education in, in our teaching lifetimes is that it's become increasingly datorized. So we can now mm. see all sorts of ways in which we transgress that we didn't know. Everything okay. from the progress over so many levels of progress that students are supposed to achieve mm-hmm. over a certain period of time. And students can now see how they are digitized into a level of progression or not progression it can be monitored and under- and so and so out in society we've become a kind of surveillance capitalist society but that's like probably occurring in china right now the, the idea of surveillance capitalism i think it's happening so, everywhere though isn't it I, I i'd say yes i think the chinese have just taking it into an area of so almost logic yeah. logical manifesting it like the hobbesian leviathan the Chinese are going to be that because they believe mm. that anything else is Tiananmen Square and chaos. So they're going to yeah. control society. Whereas we, we, we're, we're allowing it to be privatized. Mass, you know, corporations and the marketplace have created a sort of surveillance capitalism, which is reframing what we are as individuals because we believe ourselves to continue not only being watched, but watching ourselves. I mean, could you also say that we're also privatizing ourselves as well? To the point that we don't feel we have any relationship really with the other going back to your earlier point i made so the idea of the old stuff of political freedom starts to uh, dissipate and and disappear because people don't feel that they have anything to identify with that's not directly related to themselves i think you can link both what you've both just said there together it's, and i'm going to go from uh, yesterday when i was at work i had my headphones in and i was listening to uh, Neil Postman's yeah. book, which I mentioned to you, John, I mean, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It was written in the early 90s, and it's as relevant now as it was, I think mean, probably more so. Mm. Uh, and in that, he talks about, I think the first essay was marked in Cambridge. Mm. He basically, he talks about the way in which essays were marked. Mm. It was the first time a kind of quantitative outcome was given for knowledge. You know, something's written down and it's worth this, you know, it has a certain grade. And he he then goes on to trace about the printing press and he talks about education and he he describes how acquisition of knowledge now becomes uh, correlated to a, a numerical outcome. And if you think, basically, all, all, all forms of social life now, well, not all, but a lot, don't they, with work, with targets, with education, with health, with everything has some sort of numerical outcome to it. And his, his point is, is as things become more digitalized, they lose their context and don't have the same meaning as they as they used to have, which kind of That's links them to what you're saying there, Dan. Yeah. The meaning is lost because it isn't contextualized properly. And he says 
the issue then becomes where you, you use technology itself to try and get yourself out of this massive increase in information. And the information is digitalized. And how do you do that? And I was thinking, really, since Postman wrote that, he could never have foreseen phones and everything else. The way our culture has dealt with this, and it's a culture which is has been determined by the technology itself. How do we deal with that? Well, we just get more and more used to shorter and shorter pieces of information because there is so much information. We look for summaries of everything, shortened down. You know, Insta- Instagram is one one minute videos. Twitter allows only a certain amount of a word count. Students in school don't want to read anything really in any depth. They just want summaries. Everything, mm. our engagement with information become a, a collection of summaries. I listened to the week before at work, actually, with my, again, headphones on that, Mark Fisher, in that one, he was explaining to a student, he worked in a FE college, and he, the guy was asking to summarise Nietzsche, and he said, you, you, you can't summarise it because the truth of Nietzsche is in, is in the very difficult nature of his writing. You have to be in it to read it, to try and grapple with it. And I wonder if maybe that's the part that's lost. I, mean, it's, I can't recommend that Postman uh, book enough. I mean, really interesting which do you think there's a possibility that we've stopped asking questions so we kind of agree we kind of we kind of agree as a society in this digital age as as you call it as you call it john that we there's there's no more questions to ask so it's almost like everything's agreed we kind of know where we're going which is which is which is yeah but everything is digitized so everything it's digitalized is, um, and shortened, and and but it, yeah. it has to be that way. That that's that's the technological. Well, that's what I'm saying. It but, has to be that way because we've decided that all you know mystery and questions of metaphysics need to be thrown in the bin because they can't be measured. So and things which are only valuable now are things which are measured and can be turned into no, data. No, but, but value is, is that truth. What value is belief. It's it, if you like, you know, you said I, mean, I liked at the beginning when you said God is now freedom we look like that and almost yeah. like the the way in which we approach the, that element of freedom is through belief not truth we have to believe the same thing it's a weird kind of polarizing view you mentioned identity politics whatever it's not really about the identity mm. politics is it it's about the perceived way in which i should i should have the right to believe in it and say anything i want versus no you should agree with me any restrictions on belief is seen as a restriction on freedom Yes, it's belief. Is belief is okay. the new economy of freedom. Okay, that's interesting. The one that strikes me there about, about that is that, is that you're, you're right. You, you off, it, it is, not, not only is it, I was trying to search for the word fetishizing earlier, that, 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 yeah. that, that freedom has become a fetish, a kind of religious uh, magic, mm. magic word that, that, that people re- rely on. But also looking at Neil Postman, and Neil Postman is drawing on Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan's yeah. idea that in the age of print, well, in the age before print, people thought about yeah. ideas narratively and verbally. And in the age of print, people thought about the world in a print form. And in the age of digital, people think sort of digitally, digitally about images. The, me- the, you know, the medium is the message and it shapes the way you think about the world. So thought is shaped in a television age, people think televisually. Well, so in, in, this, in this age, we think about things in a way that can be YouTubeized or internetized. So that it becomes simple, summarised, bullet pointed, yeah. uh, and and as you articulate a kind of accepted background truth, which is nothing can change, and this is the world the way it is. So, that, so, John, that's so curiously, I, we've got John, bags and bags of information, yeah. 
and we seem to understand yeah. lots and lots of things, but we don't look, but yeah. we don't really understand. We're simply, we're simply comprehending yeah. without understanding. So it's, it's gone. Yeah. Down. John, no, go on. Can I just say, can I just say what you just said there? That's what I was trying to say earlier. Do you think that there is this agreement, almost like living in a communist uh, system on the other political scale, that there's a total agreement about where things are going. And so there's no discussion about yeah. a possible alternative future. We don't ask these difficult questions about what is freedom because it's all sewn up and just become entirely technical, which sits in nicely with the data stuff. And so, you know, big political discussions, No, there's no arguments left anymore. So it's people just tidying up the the edges of society and the data and the and the and the internet become the new clergy we reverted yeah, to a exactly. pre-renaissance age in which we're back in the medieval Absolutely. world in which instead of speaking instead of the priests speaking in latin now they speak in incomprehensible data they speak in binary in binary yeah. <laughs> they speak in <laughs> binary yeah. they, they speak and that I mean, in terms yeah. of freedom, I, I guess what we're describing really is a largely kind of postmodern technological culture. Zizek talks about the removal of the um, uh, authority. You know, he's, a, he's that lovely example. Where he says, you know, the difference between authority, again, limiting freedom, what, what it used to do to now. So he says you know, on a Sunday when you know, you're young, the authoritative father says you're going to see your grandma and um, there's no if or buts, you're going. Right. So <laughs> you, you and, and, and it's kind of like quite liberating because, you know, there's no option. You go and see grandma. He said, whereas nowadays this kind of the, the old again, it's that uh, idea, you know, the, the incredulity to the meta narrative, you know, the, the old big stories. We used to understand ourselves by your class, gender, the old mm -hmm. social mm -hmm. sociological structures. He says now on a Sunday, rather than that, the postmodern authority says, you, you know, your mother loves you very much. And uh, mm -hmm. She won't be here forever, and uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if you if you went and saw her? And so, like, like now, more than ever, you you, you want to go and see her, and it's there's this kind of underlying, almost paranoia in the way which in way in which we regulate uh, ourselves. The authoritarian father, it it gives you a certain <laughs> sense of freedom because yes, you have to go along and sit there through the boring meeting with your grandma. Uh, and he says, you've mm. just got to do it. But you have the freedom to decide what you're going to think uh, while I mean, you're there. You might be thinking about going fishing or doing something else whilst talking to your grandma. Yeah. Whereas the second one, the more pernicious, friendly father or the, or the friendly boss, is almost directing your thoughts as well as your action. Yeah, and a lot of society today is very passive-aggressive. And it, it's even as we're all, we're all teachers or previous teachers, you've got the modern management of education, which adopts this very positive language, which when I started teaching management, you say, look, we just got to get, get on with this. It's a bit of a pain in the ass. We've got to do it. But now they're this kind of this softly spoken, friendly boss, which is much more uh, dishonest than the authoritative father, because yeah. they're saying you, you, we want to do, we want you to be feel positive about your work. We want to feel excited about your work. That word excited is overused uh, in corporate language and also being on a journey and this enforcement that we're all doing something together. We're all on a journey together. All this kind of language is very similar to what Zizek's friendly, in inverted commas, father is saying, the yes, liberal father, the controlling than the authoritative father. 
And as I sit here, I think to myself, goodness me, how saturated schools are and, and indeed our society with passive aggression in, Absolutely. and, and, and yeah. manipulation. We live in a nudge, psychologically manipulative culture, whether it comes from advertising, yes. you know, in the days of the uh, hidden persuaders, yeah. Vance Packard's hidden persuaders, or in the school, yeah. when you turn to a class these days and say, do your homework or you get a detention, or you imply <laughs> that they're, they're somehow their lives will be ruined. You need to be working to, to, to get on. You know, you're, you're at school now to build your identity. It must be terrible pressure. But it's not, but, but it's like what Richard said and, and what Zizek says, it's not honest because really no, yeah. it's, not about the ch- it's not about the child and their future. It's about control. Absolutely. So if you have a person's thoughts under control over one idea, i.e. in this kind of just becoming a, a consumer, and if it's also I mean, the subject of this podcast, if you couch the, that kind of control in the language of freedom, then people are coerced while they think they're free. <laughs> that's that wonderful. I think you're absolutely right. I think coerced by, by, um, by the suggestion of freedom and, and the dishonesty of yeah. it. I, mean, I, I was thinking of a, yeah. a lovely sketch once. Where it might have been Mitchell and Webb. And the sketch is yeah. there's, a te- there's a teacher in the classroom and there's a kid and he's leaning across the table and he's saying, well, Stephen, you know, you've, you've, you, you, you know you can do this, Stephen. You know, you've just got to believe in yourself. And you've really, I mean, because you know that in here and, he, and, he, and the bell goes. The teacher goes, right, gets his newspaper out. The kid goes, yeah, you were saying? He goes, break time, piss off. The mask slips. It's so so much, you know, the the caring, the considerate, the self-fulfilling nature that we are yeah. all implored to have you know you, you you must live you must do the best for you there's a lot of dishonest i think it's more overt in advertising but i bet it's it, it's absolutely true in education i mean there's another also, point on this one i mean it's a compulsion to enjoy as well because this is another point as part of that same argument that he makes where you are regulating ourselves continually it's a bit Foucauldian, but there's that regulation well we're just self-regulated continually that's what you're saying dan isn't it the voice of the of the friendly boss is internalized. It's your voice, isn't it? Then you think you're being free, but you're being coerced. How does an individual do that? The, the arguments are around consumption. Then that you, we then try and fill up what it is we feel we're missing through consumption and buying things, and you buy into yeah. the objects of, of postmodern culture become almost partial. Insofar as you're you're no longer buying an object for its for its aesthetic or its usefulness in the one thing, you are buying an object that has with it an experience that's coupled yeah. with it. So it's not enough. I mean, we, you mentioned the other week, John, about the, that Zizek sketch with the, the cup of coffee. You know, it's not enough to have the cup of coffee. The cup of coffee, as you sit there in Starbucks, has a whole identity that goes with it. And you can make the argument, really, that the, the selves off the shelves argument where, where we construct mm-hmm. our own identities are, are coupled with this almost extreme paranoia to try and become something through these objects which are partial they are they are void of their essence they're what makes them them so like beer without alcohol coffee without caffeine you have to engage in all these things but there's a there's a gap between the actual pure essence of the thing we're mediated from it all the time but at the same time constantly consuming vaping yeah vaping yeah, vaping, yeah. <laughs> smoking <laughs> without the smoke but there's a backlash against that because then Zizek makes the argument search for the real or what he means is that you, then you find it like extreme sports 
people go and do things to, to try and get in touch with everything from Ironman competitions to to MMA. He even uses in one of the books the example of cutters, you know, sort of self-harming. He uses a, an interview where somebody that was doing this themselves said they do it just to feel alive, just to feel themselves again. Because his his point is in this sort of society we're in, the the actual essence of everything's been removed, sanitized, given back to us, and because of this this desire to consume, to become subject, and, and yes, that's yeah. the reason it's there. So consumption is coercion. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah, but it's expressed as freedom, so everyone everyone laps yeah, it up. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, and it's I, not freedom. And I cannot be and I cannot yeah. be free in in any other way except going to IKEA or going to Argos. Yeah. And that's the point. You go to IKEA and you buy you buy into this experience. It's not the object. It's the experience of the consumption and having the thing there, giving a version of a, of a lifestyle, if you like. And it brings us full circle of the way to what we said at the beginning about what is actual freedom and the des- des- desirability of freedom. Before, Dan, you joined us, when you, when you were struggling to make your way through the ether, I said to Richard that, what time can you do the podcast? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm off to Aldi today, but I'm free the rest of the day. And I, and I quipped. <laughs> I was, uh, if, unless freedom's an illusion, to which Richard said, well, unless the illusion is freedom. And I thought, well, of course that is, that is in a sense. Yeah. E- is it true that our society has been extraordinarily successful at manufacturing the illusion of freedom? Well, extent, definitely. It's quite tyrannous, really. But maybe of it's course. an illusion that we all welcome because don't we love the idea of, of being free? I mean, it's an extraordinarily desirable thing. To feel, could, even though it's an illusion, you, even though I'm not free in most of what I do in my could life. I, could I say, perhaps, that's why when we started this podcast and we said, well, what is freedom? Because it's an illusion and doesn't quite exist and it's been emptied out of any real meaning. That's why nobody ever asks, what do we mean by freedom? Nobody talks about freedom in a philo- philosophical or political sense anymore. They tend to see it as something which is very individual and personal. So we're just we're administering it, like I, I said earlier, with, with, with no arguments, no discussions anymore. Yeah, but then while it's an illusion, it's a very incredibly powerful one. I recently watched the, that wonderful documentary film about the First World War soldiers. It wasn't a documentary. It was the, it was the recreation of the guy that did Lord of the Rings. He, he took a series of First World War films and then digitised them to oh, make the them coloured ones, yeah. Coloured yeah. them in and everything. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're moving and then added a bit of sound effects in the background so you can see... And I thought to myself, well, if you said to a soldier in the First World War, what are you fighting for? And what is it you believe in? They would they, they'd have had the most profound belief that this was, you know, they were about to go over the top and be certainly killed in a lot of cases or be injured in, for something they deeply believed, love of country, defence of the realm, fending off the, the, the Bosch. All of those things, though, were largely illusions. There was no threat to Britain in the First World War. National identity, people think of themselves as English and British. You can be lots of beliefs that are pure idiocy, but people will die for them or commit violence for them. Well, freedom, freedom may be an illusion, but it's a very, very beautiful and powerful illusion. Don't we want to believe yep. modern world in this digital world where we don't have religion we have this capitalist idea of objects and things and experiences as as Richard was outlining but so so we have this thing where everything is agreed freedom is an agreement which is unanalyzed and that's why people aren't 
you know, very um, enamoured by big ideas and big thoughts anymore because everything's sewn up. Because freedom is always deferred. But how yeah. much of our lives are deferred? We, sp- we live in a very deferred culture. And we're always going, you know, next summer, next spring, when I've paid off the mortgage, when I've got enough savings in the bank, yeah. when I've achieved this, I'll go on that diet. I'll go to the gym. There's always yeah. a series of deferred ways in which but that's, I will achieve some sort of freedom, but just out of reach. So that's the yeah. psychoanalytic argument that we've chatted about before about how fantasy or you know belief, whatever you, you know, how we or, or narration, if you like, keeps you at a distance from the inherent void or failure that that is the thing itself. You know, yeah, it's true. not there, but the the fantasy of the thing keeps it alive. You know, the, the worst thing you can do is achieve your goals. You know, you you, you get there, and it's it's like castles made of sand, isn't it? It's it, after you know initial fluffy feeling, it's gone. The thing yeah. that you work towards or that gave you this coordinates by which you understood your social world has collapsed. Human beings, by by very nature of being, I say by nature, I don't like using that word, but desire, desire itself can have no end point. You, you can't arrive at it. it it's more of a, it's, it's always there. It's, I've got another Lacanian joke here sure. with a English Irishman and a Scotsman get a year in jail and they say you can have one wish when you're in prison and the uh, Irishman says I'll have a, a year supply you know an everlasting supply of um, Guinness the, Sc- the Scotsman says I'll have a year's supply you know, of scotch of, of whiskey and the Englishman says I'll have a year's supply of cigarettes please and uh, so after a year they open up the cell and the Irishman drops out liver failure keels over and then Scotsman does pretty much the same and then they open the Englishman's door and he says um, I say you, you wouldn't have a light would you <laughs> and, and the point is is that you know our, our, the things that we want we need to be mediated from because we can't you know achieving them is, is, off, is often the worst thing that can happen to us that's interesting. Um, yes. Complete opposite of this would obviously be a kind of Buddhist perspective, which... Exactly, you know, yeah, totally yeah. opposite. I don't know what Zizek would say about Buddhism. I can tell you what he says yeah, in the book on belief. Yeah, because the essence of Buddhism is recognising all that we're talking about and removing yeah. yourself. Real Theravada Buddhism, which says that you've got to realise that there is no self, there is no ego, and, there's a, and that Nirvana is just a blowing out of everything. The centre of everything. There's a nothing. In the book on belief, he talks about, it was one of his sort of early 2000s books. And I'm sure in that one, he says about it being the ultimate Western capitalist religion, because you enter into this thing of like, of self, as it were, but there is no room there for political action. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the argument's something like that. Buddhism says the self doesn't exist. It's an illusion. But and while you're thinking that and that going on, then inequalities is... You know, from, from oh, yeah, a kind of yeah. Marxist it's, perspective, not, carries yeah. on. You're not going to find many Marxist Buddhists. Yeah. No, no. I was <laughs> going to say that it's that, not that, a combination that, I've heard before. Yeah, but, but, but if a Marxist, <laughs> if a Marxist met a Buddhist, if a Marxist met yeah. a Buddhist, they would. <laughs> it sounds like it was in the punchline. The Marxists would certainly agree that much of society is illusory. And false, false consciousness was produced. Of course, yeah, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Yeah. And then the, the Buddhists say, yeah, but you're just that's only the start of it, mate. The whole, the whole of material reality is an illusion. <laughs> yeah, but John Marx believes that the state would just wither away, and that the true history of humanity would then begin when when the state vanished and there was you know proper communist revolution. The communists are trying to replace one thing with another. 
whereas the buddhist is just saying look there's nothing oh, there at the center and therefore that's what that's what will set you free you'll be entirely happy when you realize the the essential nothingness of life yeah <laughs> well, a lot, yes as long as you yes exactly as long as you can reconcile it's a bit of a, bleak, a, bit of a bleak view but that does seem quite releasing and relaxing in a way to say there's but would it be fulfilling i don't know but that's the kind of buddhist perspective and is that an answer to what what freedom could possibly be but it does also it does sound rather like the freedom one's going to achieve naturally anyway just by dying <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, it's I, like a I think, I, I think I've got an appointment with a freedom from myself. <laughs> sometime right yeah, so about. I said the only way you can be truly free is right, sometime in the 2050s, probably. Hopefully, sometime in the 2050s, I should be <laughs> oh, later taking an extended, an extended, okay, extended leave from myself. Yeah. <laughs> nature of freedom and i think not, human beings don't like the idea they really do not like the idea that, that, that we don't have freedom or that our lives are deterministic to get into that philosophical idea that if, if if you say to someone you know are you free you say well i'm certainly free at this moment to raise my hand and touch that cup and you know touch, knock myself on the head and all that and we certainly want to believe that and it feels it feels intuitively powerful to be free i did a story not a story. This was actually a sociological study. It wasn't. A, I don't know if it was a study or just a, an observation of an old people's home. And in this old people's home of some years, some, I, I forget where I read this, but they had they compared different regimes in old people's home. I don't think it was an experiment on the old people. That sounds awful. But it was a, like they compared different regimes, and they found that in a regime where dinner was at two o'clock, and on Monday you had sprouts, and on Tuesday you had stew, and on Wednesday you had the tomato soup. And, and visitors were allowed on, on Sunday afternoon and you played bingo on Sunday morning. On a regimented world, you, people lived a certain amount, you know, there was a certain amount of turnover. People got into their 80s and 90s and every year they lost a few. Uh, well, yeah, as yeah, 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 you would. And they, they <laughs> compared this with, with homes where they pretty much had a similar routine, but they gave people an illusion of freedom. So they'd say to them, well, do you want tomato soup today or do you want it tomorrow? You want to play bingo or should we play Ludo? You know, they introduced more freedom, quite absurd kind of levels of not particularly, you know, not particularly important freedom, but but some enough freedom. And they and people by a measurable degree lived longer. In other words, death declined. People put off dying because they could choose whether the tomato soup was on a Monday or a Tuesday. I mean, to put it in its simplest thing, we enormously value even what is pathetic levels of choice. We don't like to have that taken away from us. But there's, there's a flip point. side to that as well, isn't it? I mean, isn't the whole kind of existential argument is about, you know, it's existential fear of absolute freedom, isn't it? If you have too much choice, it's almost, that that in itself is, is almost traumatic. I mean, that's, yeah. that was Sartre's argument, wasn't it? I mean, I, I remember hearing a, an interview with, um, uh, is his name not uh, Ferris? Tim Ferris, is it? The guy that wrote Four Hour work week and four hours he's a really interesting guy and he's, he's really interesting in interviews so he was obviously a really wealthy guy he wrote this sort of bestseller you know 10 years or so ago and he, he sort of jets around the world and gives sort of seminars and, and this kind of thing and he got himself a dog I'm, I'm pretty sure it was this he, he got himself a dog just because it, in looking after the dog I mean obviously it wasn't the only reason but one of the the, the main ones is that just having those kinds of uh, choices taken away from you in in some part actually made you more happy 
that you, you wake up in the morning, you have certain obligations, like you said at the very beginning, Dan, so, so some form of, you know, to be happy in your freedom, there is an element of service or, or physical mm. balance there as well, of, of too much freedom is, is too much for a human being. Not enough. If you feel, if you feel you're not getting enough. There is. It is. It is a mm. curious perception. Uh, difficult uh, paradox is another paradox. You come across a lot of these paradox. Is that people like the idea of freedom, but it often yeah. does make you quite miserable. One of those TED talks by a chap talks about the, the pain, the painful nature mm. of our society. There's, there's a he says, oh, there's a hundred, hundred and fifty different kinds of salad dressing in in an average supermarket these days. Whereas back in the sixties, there were five. And he says, yeah. that, replicate that across our society. These, these high levels of choice are actually quite tyrannizing, quite people quite, and they, they carried out some sort of experiments where they gave people limited choice or more choice. They were, they were more discomforted by more choice, but they always wanted more choice. So if you offered people, would you like a choice or shall I choose for you? People said, I'll choose, thank you very much. John, well, the trouble with this, the choice we have now, the freedom of choice, which is another catchphrase in the modern world, is it's all, as Richard was saying, linked around objects and experiences not about uh, making decisions about how we all live together, which is where the origins of political thought on freedom comes from. How are we all going to get along with each other? Uh, but that discussion has now evolved. But that comes back to you know, what Richard and, was and saying then earlier. We but... then, we ex- then we express freedom through consumer choice rather than political action. True consumption, yeah. So we started off the idea of freedom with, you know, how we're all going to relate towards each other, almost like the American Constitution. How can we all be free, like Rousseau or Mill? So replacing the the government of persons by the administration of things. So we're now expressing freedom through the administration of things, i.e. how do we organise our shops to create the best consumer choices? Mm. As Richard says, that's not going to make us feel very satisfied as human beings. Who have... But Dan, isn't that what all human beings are doing, in a sense? We're, we're all of us on the Titanic. Uh, we have to reconcile ourselves as we get older. I mean, uh, the, the child has to reconcile themselves to the limits of ordinary material existence. So a child thinks, they, you know, Miss, Mr. Chair can sit next to Mrs. Chair. And you realise actually some things are alive and some, some things are dead. And as you get older, you realise in life the material limits of life replaced by a sense of mortality and while we're sitting on the titanic waiting to go down we're all moving the chairs around creating some yeah. sort of illusion of i can at least control that before well there's before. some people starting to think they can start to, they can start to live forever and they can download their minds we've got the thing that richard was saying earlier about the idea that belief is replacing truth so what you've expressed so eloquently there is is yeah that's the truth of life but we seem to be moving away from a relationship with truth of life to expression of personal it's, belief. It's not just belief, though. I mean, it's it's belief. It's an agreement of belief. I think it's not enough to for me to believe. You have to believe the same as I do. It's the others, the others' access to pleasure. It there's something. It, it's a yeah. it's a consensus, and and I think it works so efficiently because of again. I'll go back to technology now. You know the interconnectedness now of human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giddens' expression: time-space distanciation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, you've made it in sociology. Yeah. You've got to make up a make up a word. But that that compression <laughs> of time and space. So we're all so connected now. It makes this economy of belief so much more powerful than it's ever been. This agreement of beliefs. I think that's what we see playing out. I mean, kind of another guy. I really recommend having a look at. Is not. He only is a philosopher, I suppose. Is a Jocko Willick. Have you ever heard of him? 
Jocko Willick is an American. It's an, I think he was a commander in the Navy SEALs, but a really, really interesting guy. And I, I read a book of his a few years ago, about, about a year ago. It was, um, it's just called Discipline Equals Freedom. You arrive at freedom from being in charge of yourself. Kind of, kind of what you've alluded to earlier, Dan, about you have... There are, there freedom, are yeah. yeah, but in regards to a certain, you know, a, a responsibility to yourself, you know, to... Um, yeah. I don't think yeah. it's Nietzschean really, but that, that, that kind of self-discipline yeah. is what will give you yeah. freedom. Because if you don't have self-discipline, then you end up in the kind of existential trap of having no, nothing and the the fear of absolute freedom is yeah. it generates anxiety doesn't it it's an anxious yes, state to yeah. be in it's not a good one yeah which, which is probably probably this idea that you can be anything you want you know it's probably one of the the issues around the in, increases in problems around mental health that you're seeing you know the, exactly. the, the idea that you can be anything or do anything but the, mm. anything that the problem is in the thing because there's nothing to over there is nothing to be yeah. there there it's full of these sort of empty signifiers that offer partial parts of lifestyle choices that i want to be seen to pursuing some some sort of lifestyle or some version of self which isn't really for the kind of freedom that like say jocko willick would would talk about or you see yeah. social media i'm i'm on the fence with social media i, I think it has as much good as it does bad uh, in my experience with it but but it's um yeah. definitely something in it if you allowed yourself to invest in that and you were constantly looking at the other, as it were, in these short summaries, constantly micro sort of moments of, of lifestyle choices, it's, we, we, it's almost like yeah. we're programmed. Who knows how yeah. long these podcasts will sit there and someone will be listening to them years from now. Yeah, so posthumously we'll become famous. There we are. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. We are. Yeah, we've defeated. It'll be on the grave. Yeah, yeah. they 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 were the, the Spinoza triad. Yeah, what are now considered a classic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Got this for housework. Yeah. Right. right, I'll catch up with you soon. That was brilliant. Thanks, John. Take care. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the discussions of the Spinoza triad. John Gibbs, Dr. Richard Miller and Dan Rowland. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. If you have suggestions for ideas for future discussions, comments, you can record your comments, send them to us by email, follow us on our website or comment on the Facebook page, which is linked to this site. If you are a regular listener to our discussions, you'll realise that these podcasts appear at somewhat irregular intervals. This is somewhat dependent on our work commitments and our ability to meet together over Zoom. If you record a comment, we hopefully could play it or respond, however you may wish to be a guest on our show. If you would like to do that, please contact us by email and we can include you in the discussion in future. It is a delight and a surprise that our audience has been steadily growing across this country and around the world. I hope you've enjoyed our discussions and I hope it won't be too long before we can record another. Thank you.